and good morning. morning. You will find in your bulletin material there, it's a little inconspicuous, it looks like on white paper, so I call it to your attention unless you overlook it. These are notes from this morning's message, and if that helps you to follow along, if you'd like to make notes, then uh, whatever helps you this morning to do that. Well, when we hear the word pilgrims, Americans naturally tend to think of those uh, English settlers who came to the New World in 1620 aboard the Mayflower. A pilgrimage, by definition, is a long journey, uh, usually with some religious or moral purpose attached to it. Uh, I don't know if it's still done or not, but when I was in high school, the Canterbury Tales were studied in English literature. Does anybody remember reading the Canterbury Tales? Oh, yes, many of you do. Well, you'll know then that you'll recall that those were pilgrims, and there were some 30 pilgrims that were each telling their tales, their stories, as they marched the Canterbury Trail on their way to Canterbury Cathedral. And why were they on that? Well, they were on a pilgrimage, and they were there to go and visit the shrine of Archbishop Thomas Becket, who was murdered in the cathedral in the year 1170. Well, all of us who are Christians are on a lifelong pilgrimage. And we're off to a place St. John calls in the Revelation the New Jerusalem. Listen to how he describes it. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, or, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That from Revelation chapter 21. And the good news, beloved, is that this is our final pilgrimage, and it is to our final and eternal destination with God himself. Well, this morning's psalm is about the old Jerusalem. Psalms 120 through 134, you may notice that in, in some of your uh, translations, there's a, there's a note at the top of those <clears throat> that describe these psalms as psalms of ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T. For it is believed by many that these were sung by those who were making their way up to old Jerusalem, those for those special feast days and holy days like Passover and the Day of Atonement and Pentecost. Jerusalem sits high on, on, a, on a hill so that whenever you're coming to Jerusalem, you, you go up to Jerusalem, no matter where you're from. Thus, these are called songs of ascent, sung by pilgrims as they were marching upward to Zion. You remember the song, The Beautiful City of God, an old Isaac Watts hymn. Well, their pilgrimage was not easy. In addition to the physical demands, there were those, as we read this morning in Psalm 123, who showed contempt to the faithful by mocking them, so much so that as Psalm 123, 4 puts it, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. You ever feel that way? I've just had enough. I've had it. <laughs> That's the way they felt. My soul has had enough. So what are they to do at this point? Quit? No. What does the psalmist say? Verse 1, he says, To you I lift up my eyes. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. And that idea of God being enthroned, that's something we, we don't want to get crashly literal about that and so forth. But nevertheless, the idea of God being enthroned suggests supreme power. 
It suggests authority. So this is our first lesson. First lesson, the pilgrimage is not easy. So when your soul has had more than enough, remember, who's in charge? Who is in charge? Those around you? Those that are throwing rocks at you verbally or maybe even literally? No, God is still on his throne. So do what? Keep marching upward. That sounds like a very simple lesson, but it's a powerful lesson. You feel like giving up? Just one more step. Keep marching upward design. This morning we also read of God's calling of the prophet Ezekiel. Fascinating bunch, the Old Testament prophets. I love those guys. Only one of the prophets volunteered for the job. <laughs> the rest were drafted. Isaiah was the one who volunteered. He has this heavenly vision, and he hears God saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us, who will speak for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am. I'll do it. I'll do it. Send me. But once he hears the message and God's warning that that message is going to be completely ignored, Isaiah's reduced to saying, How long, O Lord? How long have I got to do this? Well, you and I are not prophets, but as believers... We are called of God. Do you know that? We are the called ones of God. The words call and calling and, and cognates of it are used dozens of times in the New Testament. Not to describe the calling of the prophets or even of the clergy of our day. No, they describe and define our salvation in terms of our becoming believers and our task of following Jesus Christ. For example, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. Confirm it, and how do we do that? By our lifestyle, by our attitudes, by the ways that we grow in Christ. He said earlier at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, you know that feast of Pentecost, that's one of those feasts they would make pilgrimage to. And we know from the book of Acts that at this particular day when Peter preached that landmark sermon, that there were many pilgrims there. The Bible calls them proselytes. These were Gentile converts to Judaism who came from all over the Roman Empire to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the holy days. And here's what he says to them. He says, for the promise. What promise? The promise of salvation. The promise of eternal life is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Back to those places you're going to. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You and I are saved because God has called us to himself. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the writer there describes his readers as holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. And St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he speaks of salvation as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But the message of the ancient prophets of Israel was not usually so joyous. It didn't come as good news to those who first heard those prophets. Ezekiel describes God's message to the people in verse 10, if you read on in there in Ezekiel 2, as words of lamentation, sadness. Words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. In God's call, his, commission, his uh, commissioning of Ezekiel, he describes his audience as nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. Three times God calls them a rebellious house. And he repeatedly tells Ezekiel, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words. Now question. How do you see the pagans around you? How do you see the pagans? And this may include some that I would call prodigals. These are those who 
have, have been in the father's house, but they've wandered like the prodigal son. Those who have not yet heeded the upward call, the heavenly calling. May I be brutally frank this morning with you? Far too many Christians see the unbelievers around us as the enemy. And that's especially true in our nation when we toss in the political and legal aspects of life together with those who not only do not share our worldview as Christians, but who often actively oppose it and fight against it. How many of us do not feel the anxiety of that and the pain of that? But I would remind you, as God reminded Ezekiel, that their rebellion is against God. It's not against you and I. Thus, I remind you, as God reminded Ezekiel of this, that, uh, that don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words. Now, this is not, and please hear me well on this point. Please hear me well. This is not a, a plea for indifference. Heaven knows we have been so desensitized. And I, I think about people in my lifetime and how different the world was that I was born in and how different it is now in terms of what's acceptable and what's permissible and what is not. We've become so desensitized to it that we're almost numb. And I suppose some of that is, is inevitable. But we also read in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, that Lot, Abraham's nephew Lot, who was no paragon of virtue himself, we read that even Lot was disturbed and distressed. The word is even tormented by the evil that he saw around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's one thing to do that. We need to realize that our real enemy is Satan. Satan is the enemy. And they have believed his lies. Those around you who you would consider pagans or those who are not following Christ, they have believed his lies. Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, one of the verses says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. They are in rebellion against God. John says this in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do they hold us in contempt as Christians? Yeah, you know they do. Call us all kind of names, their words. Ezekiel would say, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words. Sometimes they do. And what are we to do with those who curse us, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? What are we to do? Bless them. Curse them back? Throw rocks back at them? No. Bless them. Oh, that's the lesson, second lesson. The pilgrimage is not easy, so remember God's word to Ezekiel and do not fear them. If you see them as the enemy, you will soon and easily view them with fear and loathing. They do not need your contempt. They need your compassion. See them as Jesus does, lost sheep with no shepherd. This morning's gospel reading from Mark 6 speaks to this. Even the Lord Jesus Christ found much to his own amazement that even those in his own hometown, even those among his kinfolk who knew him well, there were many who did not believe. So why would we think that it would be any different for us? It's not going to be any different. Our reading ends at Mark 6, 6, and he marveled, that is, he was amazed because of their unbelief. And... That's one of Mark's favorite words, you know. And, and he went about among the villages teaching. Look, he was amazed at it. And he shrugs his shoulders and continues teaching. And, verse 7 says, he called the twelve. He said, we need more help. 
We need, to, we need to mobilize the troops. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, gave them authority over unclean spirits, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, well, then what do you do when you leave? He says, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against him. Just a silent, shake the dust off. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons, anointed many with oil who were sick, and healed them. I came across this recently from a guy named Leslie Newbigin. He was a, he's not an Anglican. He was an English uh, Protestant missionary, though, to India and a wonderful theologian. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but hear this well. Our faith as Christians is that just as God raised up Jesus from the dead, so will he raise up us from the dead. And that just as all that Jesus had done in the days of his flesh seemed on Easter Saturday to be buried in final failure and oblivion, yet was by God's power raised to a new life and power again, so all the faithful labor of God's servants, which time seems to bury in the dust of failure, will be raised up and will be found to be there transfigured in the new kingdom, the new Jerusalem. Every faithful act of service, every honest labor to make the world a better place, which seemed to have been forever lost and forgotten in the rubble of history, will be seen on that day to have contributed to the perfect fellowship of God's kingdom. As Christ committed himself to God and was faithful, even when all ended in utter failure and rejection, was by God raised up so that all he had done was found to be not lost, but alive and powerful. So, all who have committed their work in faithfulness to God will be by him raised up to share in the new age and will find that their labor was not lost, but that it has found its place in the completed kingdom. Is that not an encouraging word? So the third lesson is simply this. The pilgrimage is not easy. Don't get discouraged. Get busy. Shake the dust off your feet if you have to and move on. Remembering the words of St. Paul, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This morning's epistle reading, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, is also helpful and encouraging to us as pilgrims. He speaks there about that thorn in the flesh, which we have no idea what it is, so no needless speculation about any of that. Because what he finds out is, my grace, God tells him, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Weakness is not a liability. It's actually a good thing. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content in my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And the lesson, again, is, is very simple and yet very profound. The pilgrimage is not easy. In reality, it's impossible. Our weaknesses are blessings in disguise, but it is only in the doing, only as we are engaged in the fight, that we find the grace to carry on. Now, let me just elaborate for a second on that, because we tend to think, oh, Lord, give me the strength to do this. Lord, give me the grace to do this or to not do that or whatever we're asking God to do. And God says, tell you what, you obey me. You do the right thing. You do what I bid you to do. 
And in the doing of it, you will find the grace to get it done. That's how it works. We don't wait for the power and then go. No, we go, and it is in the going that we are empowered. Now, our fifth and final lesson for pilgrims. I want us to circle back to Psalm 123 before we begin. These words would have been sung by these ancient pilgrims as they made this difficult journey to Jerusalem. And their singing was a time of worship, a time of corporate worship. The writer of this psalm, you'll note, begins with the singular pronoun, I. I lift up my eyes. To you, I lift up my eyes. But I, I kind of picture him starting the song and then others join in. And as the others join in singing, it quickly becomes us and our, such as our eyes look to the Lord. Have mercy on us. And that singing of these songs is not just a way to pass the time. No, it was what strengthened them in body and mind and in spirit. And that's what worship does. In particular, corporate worship. You're here this morning worshiping not just as an individual, although you are that, but you are also here as the body of Christ. And we're all going to gather around his table very soon and be enriched and nourished and strengthened by the body and blood of Christ. In writing of these Psalms of Ascent, Eugene Peterson, a Presbyterian brother, says this, Even in all this grace, overcome with all this glory, one look around confirms that we are not home yet. What a shock. There is a new Jerusalem for which we long, a lasting city upon which we, our hope is set, which means we're called to a kind of praise that we didn't plan. We would have never designed it this way, but God knows what he's doing. He has let us taste a joy that defies this world, a mirth, a gladness that confounds its wisdom. How do we sing the Lord's song here in the nasty here and now? How do we sing the Lord's song here, he's asked, by breathing in the air from there? I like that. We humbly realize that for now the new humanity that is created around Jesus is not a humanity that is always going to be successful and in control of things, but a humanity that can reach out its hand from the depths of chaos to be touched by the hand of God. We're in a fight of faith here, but we never fight alone. As distant as the new Jerusalem might seem, we can still reach out our hand. Home's not that far away. So lesson five, the pilgrimage is not easy. But look around you. Just look around you this morning. Look around you during your work week. You are not alone. Because we, we are marching upward to Zion. Amen.